Hello, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us today here in Zollinger Library. I'm Marcus, the uh, new director here, and uh, really grateful to have you join us because uh, we want to start bringing programming back here into the library, and uh, I want to introduce our special guest speaker tonight. Uh, he was very gracious to be our first uh, presentation as uh, we start to kind of get the series going. Um, I want to eventually have you know monthly things where we have presentations and um, learn about new cultures, and so uh, thank you very much for being willing to do this for us. So uh, without further ado, allow me to introduce our special guest speaker, Dr. Andrew McPheeters. Thank you, Marcos. That was a great introduction. Uh, thanks for making this possible. Uh, the Marcos came up with this idea uh, because we had St. Patrick's Day over the, over the break, and so we didn't have much of a chance to celebrate it. And so uh, this is a great opportunity. Great opportunity for me, too. I don't get many chances to talk about uh, some of the stuff I studied in college. So, um, and also thank you to UNM Gallup, you know, for making this space available. And I'm really looking forward to the future, the future uh, presentations coming up, too. So, Kemia uh, Felcha, uh, is how I would begin this uh, discussion. That means 100,000 welcomes to you. Uh, and it's in the language of Gaelic, a language that's still spoken today in Ireland. Uh, uh, according to a 2016 uh, census report, about 40%, almost 40% of the people in Ireland still speak Gaelic. But on a day-to-day -day basis, day -day basis, a very small group still speak it. So it's one of those languages you have to fight to keep going. Um, so, uh, but today, uh, we will talk about uh, several different topics. And, uh, and I kind of try to organize it. I hope it seems like there's a, a seamless narrative to this, this presentation today. But in many respects, it's just an exploration of Irish history, old and new, uh, Irish mythology, Irish folklore, and then, uh, then uh, kind of to show together, to show how Irish mythology and, and storytelling and, and uh, folklore is kind of uh, you know, one of those ways that we define ourselves as a culture. Even though we live in the 21st century, that's still kind of part of who we are. And when we think about cultural identity, we often do it through that one way or the other. So first I thought I'd play a little music. You have to have, you're gonna talk about Ireland, you have to celebrate music a little bit. This is a song by uh, Lorena McKennett, but the lyrics come from William Butler Yeats's uh, poem, A Stolen Child. It's a very famous poem. Um, and it's about an encounter between the fairy folk and a child. Oh 
So the, the music, I mean, I'm gonna, we're gonna uh, revisit this poem later on in this discussion. But the music, it seems to me there's always kind of two types of Irish music. There's either the boisterous and the very exciting and the kind of gets you revved up for a night out. And then there's the Irish music that often kind of mixtures so much, it's very sweet and beautiful, but also sorrowful in some weird way. And so this poem, uh, it, like I said, it's from William Butler's, um, uh, William Butler Yeats wrote it. And it's got this refrain throughout it where it keeps on the fairies, it's, it, it's spoken from the fairy perspective and it's speaking to the child. And eventually by the end of the poem, the child is stolen, stolen away from the human world. And that's a repeating folktale in Irish mythology. Uh, it's a strange one and we'll explore it in a bit, but it's like their abductions were a popular part of that mythology. Um, and uh, there's almost kind of a, a mixture of emotions because it's sorrowful from the human side, but to enter into the fairy world, there's kind of an escape from the suffering of the human world in some weird way. So, but uh, first let's get to history a little bit. And so when you talk about Irish history, and when we talk about history in general, a lot of times we catalog it in terms of dates. You know, a date occurs, and we can say there's a declaration of independence, or we could say there's a treaty that was signed and then it was kept or it was broken. And so uh, a lot of times history is just a series of numbers in a way. Uh, but, um, so with that in mind, let's first try to dispel a couple of the myths uh, about St. Patrick's Day since we just had that, what is today, the 23rd and March 17th was St. Patrick's Day. And so first of all, St. Patrick, yes, he is the, saint, he is the patron saint of Ireland, uh, but he was not from Ireland. Uh, he was from Roman Britain. Um, another fiction is that he vanquished all of the snakes from Ireland, also incorrect. There were no snakes in Ireland. And I only bring that up just because when you go out in St. Patrick's Day, a lot of people are dressing in green and they're having a good time, but a lot of them can't find Ireland on a map. So, <laughs> so, so another fact, most of the people who celebrate St. Patrick's Day don't know much about Ireland. So, but, you know, there I am approaching history in some way, thinking about fact versus fiction, you know, misinformation versus these facts. But I don't think we often think about our cultures that way. A lot of times we think of cultures in terms, like I said, of the stories that keep with us, the stories that are handed down, uh, down to us from generation to generation. And so the problem, this is the problem with demystification. So as with any other culture, Ireland's roots are mythic. Historical dates and facts do not suffice alone to tell the story of a people. Rather, traditions of folklore, storytelling, mythology, music, and art provide the cultural fabric that ties together the past, present, and future of a people. So when we think about uh, early stories about Ireland, uh, Ireland, just like anyone anywhere else, has a mythology, a series of ancient stories. And in terms of, uh, for the Irish, there are actually four categories of mythology. And you have the mythological cycle, you have the Ulster cycle, you have the Fenian cycle, and you have the historical cycle. And these are all stories that were passed down through word of mouth for centuries. Right? It was the oral tradition that was practiced first. So uh, well, we're gonna look specifically at the mythological cycle, because really what I want to get to is one of the pop most popular uh, myths that come out of Ireland are the fairies, the fairy folk. And who are they? What do they look like? And maybe what are some of our misconceptions about them today? So, but the other cycles, like the Ulster cycle and the Fenian cycle, those are a lot, a lot of those about uh, these warriors from the past. And so you had like Cahalan, who was more like, he was kind of like the Hercules of Irish mythology, incredibly strong, uh, incredibly courageous, he would never give up. 
And then you have the Fenian cycle, and there was this big hero, Finn McCool. Sometimes he was described as a giant. Uh, but a lot of the myths also covered romances. Uh, there were also literally these magical stories about children turning into swans. So, and a lot of the stories, period, most of them have to do with the land in some way. They're all connected to the land of Ireland. The last one, the historical cycle, a lot of those have to deal with uh, kings. But even that is a mixture. There were, it's about some kings that existed and some are completely made up. They didn't even exist. So how do we know any of this today? And I do think we still practice oral traditions today, but we're a culture of reading and writing for the most part, right? That's how we tend to think about, that's how you find something out, how you do research, you find out your truths. And so what happened is uh, in the 12th century, in Ireland you had these Irish monks, and they finally started to record in writing uh, these particular stories, all of these myths. That's why I'm able to speak about those different cycles. And so it was a big moment in history, and it's great that we have that record. But it's also, uh, you know, what happens when you start to put something in writing? Um, what did we miss? What stories were left out? How were they changed? Um, and so, uh, and especially, especially in this case, and this happened in other cultures too, but the monks who wrote it down, they were Christian, right? They were Catholic monks. And the stories that we're recording from a, were from a pagan time period. So you have this weird mixture between pagan values and pagan stories being kind of reinterpreted and re reshaped with Christian values. A lot of people, when they think about that, uh, they think about the Celtic cross. And so the Celtic cross, as you can tell, you can completely see the Christian part of it. But you see how the Celtic cross has that kind of circle right in the middle of it? Uh, that's from a pagan time period and from uh, sun worshiping. So, but they, somehow they got mixed together, you know? And it makes its own unique culture in a, in a, new, kind of, uh, a new kind of way. So to get back to the uh, mythological cycle though, and another word for, another phrase for the mythological cycle was the cycle of invasions. Um, and this is what's really strange about Irish mythology that you don't find in a lot of other cultures. And that is that there is no origin story. They have no beginning story. There's no story about the sky falling in love with the earth and then giving birth to a bunch of titans or demigods, you know? There's nothing like that. Instead, there's just Ireland already exists and then there's a series of invasions. And you have all these invaders, there are all these uh, groups of people, the Fomorians, the Firbolgs, I always like that name, they sound dangerous, Firbolg, you know? Uh, you have the Partholonians, you have the Nemedians, but uh, one of the last invaders in this myth mythical story of Ireland were the uh, Tuatha Dé Danann. And these were the people that eventually would become the fairy folk that people think about when they celebrate St. Patrick's Day and they think about Irish culture. So the Tuatha Dé Danann, they were, very, uh, they were very noble, they were elegant, they were cultured, they were very wise, they were great craftspeople, but they were also magic. They were endowed with magical skills. And so they were towards the end. This is like, they were one of the last invaders uh, and they ruled Ireland for a little while, but then there was a new invader called the Milesians and they came from Spain. And remember, this is all mythical. There's not much fact in any of this really. But uh, I don't know if that matters when you think about culture and when you think about who people are. So the Milesians invade and then there's a few battles between the Tuatha Dé Danann and the Milesians and the Milesians won. And the Tuatha Dé Danann they did not surrender. They wouldn't surrender. Instead, they turned to their magical skills, and what they did was they disappeared, in a way. And so what they did, there's variations on the myth. 
One is that uh, they became invisible and they're amongst us all the time. And so on your commute to, your commute to UNM Galb today, you may very well have driven right through a castle, right? And there would be these invisible Tuatanan, these fairies, having a feast. So they're, they're parallel with us in some way. They're not dead, right? They're not from a different world. They're amongst us in some way. So the other variation is that they went underground into the subterranean world. And that's the more common one. And so if you ever go to Ireland, there's lots of stories about land there. And sometimes you'll find a, a, a hole or a gap in the earth or a cave, and that's where the fairies would be. And they, could, they can come out of there, they can encounter you. You know, you could, you could, uh, they might abduct you into their own world. So, but it's a living space that's somehow there. So the Gaelic word for fairies is she, S-I-D-H-E. And that's how you pronounce it. Um, and so the she, though, is both the fairy folk, but also the entrance into the fairy world also is called the she. And here you have a depiction of, this is actually a painting by Jack Yates, who was the brother of the uh, very famous poet, William Butler Yeats. And he depicts there a fairy dell. Uh, it almost seems very inviting. Uh, it's an impressionistic painting. You know, you can't quite tell. It looks like nature. You can't quite see what's going on there. But it's inviting you in in some weird way, right? Uh, and then on the other side, you see, and I had a picture of this at the beginning of the presentation, uh, the Hill of Tara, which is really the most famous mythical space of Ireland. And it's about 30 miles northwest of Dublin. Um, and originally, it was uh, built by prehistoric peoples. It's a bit like Stonehenge, if you can picture Stonehenge. So it was built by Neolithic people in prehistoric times, but it was used later on by other people. So Stonehenge was used by Druids later on for their ceremonies. But it's the same thing with the Hill of Tara. And so it was the seat of the High Kings. Uh, that's how they would use it. But also, in terms of the mythology and the story, it's basically Area 51 of the, of the fairy world. It's the hotbed of the, it's the Bermuda Triangle. If you're walking around with a little radar and you're trying to find fairy folk, it's gonna go off crazy when you get, up to, you get to the Hill of Tara. So it's this, um, it's this legendary site. And you can see the entrance, right? You have to wonder who's in there. So that's mythic, right? That's all the mythology. And we have those records of the myths. And what I'm trying to figure out uh, as, I'm, as I'm exploring this is sort of how we, how we define ourselves. Right? Is it through our myths and our stories that are handed down from your parents and your grandparents and so on, and that you hand out to the next people? Or is it just a series of facts, right? So, but here's a little real history, and this, this is important history. So, you, we can talk about the mythological cycle and all these mythic people invading Ireland, but then there was a real story about the real invasion of Ireland. And that's when you're talking about the British Empire, right? So uh, it was really over a series of about four centuries that the British were invading Ireland. And it's in fits and starts. It's not like some, you know, you kind of picture an invasion, like you just take over a whole place in one day. It took a long time, and they weren't everywhere. Uh, so, but uh, in uh, the 16th century, uh, Henry VIII declared himself the king of Ireland. And then not long after that, uh, Henry VIII uh, to, uh, created the Anglican Church of England, right? Because remember, Henry VIII, he wanted to uh, continue with his offspring, and he couldn't stay Catholic anymore because the Pope wouldn't let him get his divorce. And so he uh, created the Anglican Church, right? Which is like the birth of the Protestantism in England. 
So now you have England, which is Protestant, but you have Ireland, which is majority Catholic, right? So the conflict between the English and the Irish kind of covers many different levels. You got the ethnic, you have the linguistic, you have the cultural, but you also have the religious. Uh, one of the most horrifying events of Irish history was uh, the Great Famine, and that took place in the 19th century. Uh, there are various estimates about how many people died from the famine and how many people left from the famine, and that's because it was such a chaotic time, record keeping was kind of impossible. People were being buried in mass graves. So about, a safe estimate would be about a million people died. This is in the middle of the 19th century, 1847, the famine, there were several famines during that time period. And then several million people left, and they went to places like America and Canada and Australia, and into England too. So this massive loss of people, this massive loss of culture, right? And what does that do to the people? What kind of trauma does that create, right? So um, there are also loads of evictions, uh, and so it was a horrible time to live. And luckily some people survived and some people got out of there. Uh, but you can see from this map, like, well, like what the geographical element is here, right? And so when you think about the English influence on Ireland, it's all on the East Coast, right? And they, they would come in. But that's why places like Dublin, you know, there's much more of an English influence over there. And then the west of Ireland, you know, not completely safe, but you'd find villages and it'd be fairly untouched by English influence. So why does that matter? Because in the midst of all of this, all this storytelling and the history and the myths, um, is the fact that many Irish people wanted their independence. You know, they didn't want to be colonized. They wanted to have their own land and their own country. And so there's always been stirrings against the English presence there. And then most of them, well, pretty much all of them failed, right? But uh, what happened was, the, what you needed was a kind of national identity in Ireland to kick out the English. You had different people in Ireland. You had the Catholics, they were the majority, they were often the working class, they were the poor, they were the rural. And then you had these other people, you had these like Anglo-Irish. And they had English ancestry, but they had been in Ireland long enough that they felt more Irish than English. So, but that means you've got Protestants and Catholics there at the same time. They both feel Irish, they're not happy that the English are there, but how do you bring those two together? So there's so much bloodshed and animosity between the Catholics and the Protestants. And so therein lies the solution, and that is to return to myth, to return to folklore. So uh, what happened very soon is you had people like William Butler Yeats, uh, another, another great figure, a leader of the Irish revival, was Lady Gregory. There are numerous names. Um, and both of those uh, individuals happen to come from an Anglo-Irish background. They're not Catholic. But what they wanted to do was both to preserve and revive the Irish stories, the Irish traditions, and not just myths, but dancing and singing, right? And the language, Gaelic, right? So where would you go to try to find those traditions? Since the East has been uh, is under more influence of English culture, that means you go to the West. And so, on returning to that map, you have what's called the Gaeltacht. And there were regions, big pockets, where people still spoke Gaelic. It's their first language, it wasn't their second language. 
um, and they practiced the traditions. And the folk tales continued, even though this is a world of writing, the oral tradition still continues. Uh, and so they would head out there, people like Lady Gregory and William Butler Yeats, and they would start to collect these stories. You know, what are these stories about the fairies? And you'd find variations. You know, like who has the who has stories about fairies in you know in relation to uh, the sea? Well, that's the coastal people, and they do fishing, and that's their, their life is based on fishing, so that's where their, their stories come from. And then the farmers, the more agrarian area, they have their own variations on the fairies. So I wanted to read a couple of excerpts that kind of depicts uh, these kinds of, uh, the fairy folk as, as perceived by Lady Gregory and William Butler Yeats as they collect these stories from the peasants and the people from the West. Uh, this text is called Visions and Beliefs in the Western World. It's published, it was published in 1920, but Lady Gregory, Gregory had been doing this for a long time. And remember, the she is the Gaelic word for fairy. The she cannot make themselves visible to all. They are shape changers. They can grow small or grow large. They can take whatever shape they choose. They go by us in a cloud of dust. They are as many as the blades of grass. They are everywhere. Their home is in the forths, the lisses, the ancient round grass-grown mounds. You know, and that's that this, like the hill of Tara, it was like land where you could, you could go into the fairy world, right? But uh, it's kind of a neat passage because is there a definition there in a way? I mean, they're big, they're small, they're shape changers. Who are they, right? And I, and I, I tend to think that there's a, a kind of room for redefining yourself in there. Right? Because historically, right, the English are the colonizers and the oppressors, they're defining the Irish in the newspapers and their cartoons. And they used horrible stereotypes. The Irish were often uh, depicted as apes or ape-like. Uh, and they were, they were kind of shown as being irrational, incapable of uh, controlling their emotions, drunkards, you know, villains, criminal-like, right? All of these stereotypes. Um, and so here we have, a people who are saying, no, we get to define ourselves. Who are we, right? And it's just kind of neat that this is flexibility as they're kind of forming a new identity. And it's like, well, the fairies, we can be whoever we want, right? We're shape, we're shape changers. Uh, here's another uh, excerpt, and this comes from uh, Yeats's uh, work, Regina, Regina, Pygmyorum Weni, published in 1893. Uh, and that means uh, uh, come queen, queen of the pygmies. And this is a version of the Irish where they're very small and tiny, right? And so Yeats kind of creates this account where he's, he's being led by this young woman. She's encountered the fairies and he wants to meet them too. And she's taking him out to meet them. We talked to the forgetful people, as the fairy people are sometimes called, and came in the midst of our talk to a notable haunt of theirs, a shallow cave amidst black rocks with its reflection under it in the wet sea sand. I asked the young girl if she could see anything. She stood still for a few minutes, and as I, as I saw that she was passing into a kind of walking trance, I then called out the names of the great fairies, and in a moment or two, she said that she could hear music far inside the rocks. Right? So once again, it's the earth, it's the land, right? The English have occupied the land, taken the land, and this is kind of a way of taking it back. 
So this is, this is a little catalog of, uh, of fairy folk that, Irish, uh, that uh, Yeats wrote about in his book, fairy, uh, Irish Fairy and Folk Tales, published in 1893, and illustrated by his brother, who was a, uh, a very successful painter. So, uh, and I read it, you know, I don't know about everyone here. When I read these little descriptions of these different fairies, it kind of draws me back to my own childhood when I played Dungeons and Dragons, and you learn about all the different dragons and all of the dwarves and all the trolls and, you know, elves and stuff, right? Uh, but notice that how many different kinds of fairies there are. So, you know, briefly, there are the Shiaks, uh, and they would resign in thorn bushes and green raths. And they were the ones who were known to abduct people. You had the meadows. They were water fairies known to bring bad weather. And then there's the leprechaun, or the leith brogan. Uh, and they were the cobblers or shoemakers. We all know leprechauns. And they would hide crocks of gold. But they are children of evil spirits. So um, the next time you eat some Lucky Charms or Seer for breakfast, just be careful, right? Uh, you, have the, you have the Gien Canach. Uh, and this is the love talker that idles in valleys and makes love to milkmaids and shepherdesses. And then you have the puka, who was a very devilish kind of figure. Uh, and he was of the family of the nightmare. Nightmare as in mare as in horse. Um, and uh, so he would take the form as a horse, of a horse or a bull or a goat or an eagle. Uh, and, he, and he would haunt the drunkard's sleep. So he's very active in the early morning hours after St. Patrick's Day. Uh, view of the Dullahan, and the Dullahan carries his head under his arm. I don't know much about the story about the headless horseman, but I wonder, you know, is there a connection? So the Dullahan would carry his head under his arms. He drives a black coach drawn by headless horses, and he was an omen of death. And then finally, uh, and just I've left a lot out here, but there's the Banshee, and everyone knows the Banshee. She wails at, wails at nighttime. She keens, right? Uh, and we tend to think of her as sinister, but she was actually a friendly fairy. But she's there for sad reasons. So you've lost a family member, and she's crying late at night outside, right? Uh, bon means woman in Gaelic, and she means fairy, so she's a female fairy. So, but then we have, you know, some depictions of what fairies have become today, you know. And so I don't think, you know, I think it's all, it's all good fun. But it is interesting to see how, I almost wonder if there's a parallel of like how we, we can stereotype people, we can stereotype our own culture, but even like the myths and the stories of the past, we turn them into kind of like silly, uh, like trivial, reductive kind of images for mass consumption, right? And so you have, I mean, of course everybody loves Tinkerbell, you know? She's some Peter Pan, she's super cute, she flies around, she's gonna give you good luck or, you know, wishes or something like that. But that's you know, a, a very Disney image of, of fairies, and it depicts them as just purely good. Fairies could be horrible. They could be mean, they could be evil, they could be good, they could be tricksters, you know? So if you encounter a fairy, you don't quite know what you're gonna get into. But in these depictions, they're different, right? Uh, then you have J.K. Rowling's uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, this is the movie, so I don't, I don't in fact know that this is in the, in the book, but you have the Cornish Pixies, right? Uh, I guess, I'm guessing they're like tricksters or troublemakers, but maybe not too harm, you know, not too dangerous. Um, and then, uh, now by, by the Cornish, uh, Cornish pixies, uh, I also want to say that when we take some of these myths, we're talking about the Gaelic, and the Gaelic were in Ireland, but they were also in Scotland, 
they were in Wales, you know? So the culture transcends those borders originally. Uh, you have uh, the Leprechaun horror series. I don't think I've ever seen any of these movies, but I guess it does. I thought the Leprechaun, I didn't know the Leprechaun was sinister, so maybe there's some truth to the movie. You know, I don't know. And then finally, uh, you have this one I learned from my niece a few years ago. Uh, she's a big anime fan, and uh, it's called uh, uh, The Headless Fairy, and she's in the uh, series called Dura-Ra-Ra, or the Dura-Ra-Ra. I just think of Duran Duran, right? <laughs> but but uh, she, she rides through Tokyo, and she actually is, she's, she's actually an Irish fairy, uh, but she's the Dulahan because she's headless. Instead of riding a horse, she's riding a, uh, riding a souped-up uh, you know, motorcycle through the streets of Tokyo, and apparently she's looking for her head. Somehow she lost her head in Tokyo. Uh, so she takes off her helmet, all of a sudden you see that she has no head. So, I mean, I think those are great, and uh, there's nothing wrong with telling stories in new ways, but you have to wonder also if it's kind of a, we're forgetting some of the old stories of Irish mythology, right? And then uh, here's one, uh, and certainly, if I'm, a, if I'm gonna be a fantasy nerd, I'm gonna go with Lord of the Rings, that would be my collection. Uh, but you have uh, the Fellowship of the Rings, and the, all the whole series of Lord of the Rings, and so Tolkien actually, uh, he sort of denied that there was an influence of Irish mythology on his creations in the Lord of the Rings, you know, the dwarves, the orcs, the elves, all of that stuff. Uh, but there's good evidence that his depiction of the elves is very much like the fairies of Ireland. Um, and so here's this little scene. Now, if you're a real Lord of the Rings nerd, you have the original theatric version and you have the extended versions. If you don't have those both, I don't want to talk to you, right? But, but this is from the extended edition, uh, and, it, and I guess I can see why they cut, because it doesn't really fit in the flow of the movie. But it's a pretty neat scene, and you see Frodo and Samwise, are, they're about to leave the Shire, or, or they just have, and suddenly they encounter the elves. Sam. What else? Going to the harbor beyond the White Towers. To the Grey Havens. They're leaving Middle Earth. Never to return. So, um, but in that scene, they're headed westward. And that's something I, I would, didn't talk about before, but it was part of the legends of the fairies is they headed westward to kind of a uh, after they were defeated by the Milesians. And, and think about it, the West in Ireland is also the place where the culture was preserved for the most part. The West takes on this kind of strange paradoxical meaning. It's both the place of death and disappearance, but it also, in terms of Irish history and politics, becomes a place of reviving the culture and rebelling against the English. And I'll, I'll try to make that more clear as, as we go on. Uh, but I love that image. And, Part of that, the depiction of the uh, elves as woodland people is much more from Irish mythology than it is from, uh, I think the other version is like the Alpha, and they were from Sweden, I think, right? But the, the, in terms of the woods, uh, that seems much more Irish. Um, and then, of course, the sorrow of heading into the West. And the West, in many cultures, is the place of death, because that's where the sun sets. You'll find that in Egyptian mythology also. So, uh, thinking about that idea of disappearance 
and kind of the intersections between the human world and the fairy world, I did want to return to this, that one strange myth that about the stolen child and how there were fairies. They would steal people. They would steal family members, but also children, and take them into the fairy world. And what's, uh, what's also another part of that is that sometimes they would leave uh, a double behind. So you'd just wake up one day and you'd see, you know, your wife at the breakfast table and you think, well, that looks like my wife, right? But there's something a little strange about her. And so it's actually a fairy pretending to be your wife. I don't know why they did this, <laughs> but I do wonder about the fact that it is a story about you're losing a loved one and that they're going into the fairy world. And maybe that maybe has some kind of healing role in people's lives. You know, if you lose somebody, right? You'd much rather have them in the fairy world than somewhere else. So I just want to read, it's not, it's not a very long poem. And I guess I'll try, uh, please forgive me everyone, I'll try to do a little bit of an Irish brogue, right? But I, it is dangerous because when you do Irish brogues, if you push too far into the Lucky Charms territory, then it's called stage Irish, and that's when you're making fun of the Irish. Like, so I'll, I don't know, we'll see what happens here. Where dips the rocky highland of sleuth wood in the lake, there lies a leafy island where flapping herons wake, the drowsy water rats. There we've hid our fairy vats full of berries and of reddest stolen cherries. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters in the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Where the wave of moonlight glosses the dim grey sands with light, far off by furthest rosses we foot it all the night, weaving olden dances, mingling hands and mingling glances, till the moon has taken flight. To and fro we leap and chase the frothy bubbles while the world is full of troubles and is anxious in its sleep. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters in the wild with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Where the wandering water gushes from the hills above Glencar and pools among the rushes that scarce could bathe the star, we seek for slumbering trout and whispering in their ears, give them unquiet dreams. Leaning softly out from ferns that drop their tears over the young streams. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters in the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Away with us he's going, the solemn-eyed. He'll hear no more the lowing of the calves on the warm hillside, or the kettle on the hob, since peace sing peace into his breast, or see the brown mice bob round and round the oatmeal chest. For he comes, the human child, to the waters in the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, from a world more full of weeping than he can understand. And so this, the poem is spoken from the fairy perspective. And that last, that last refrain at the end is a slight shift, right? Because at that point, now the child has entered into the fairy world. Uh, but it's a, it's a mixture of emotions. It's sad and it's happy at the same time. It's a strange, it's a strange thing to try to describe uh, because the child is leaving, but the child's leaving from a world more full of weeping than he can understand. It's hard not to read that poem and uh, not think of the children in the Ukraine right now, you know, departing from Ukraine and, you know, feeling homeless in many respects, right? So uh, here's another... There's lots of big Irish writers. Uh, 
I, 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 when I studied uh, Irish literature in graduate school, I tended to focus on modern Irish writers, a little more urban, a little more cityfied, I guess, right? So James Joyce, and I wrote about uh, Samuel Beckett and also uh, Flannel Bryan. So, but Joyce is a big writer. Everybody knows that name. He's a very intimidating writer. Um, uh, but he's a city boy, right? He's from the East Coast. He's from Dublin in Ireland, right? So his, he writes about a lot, you know, he wrote several different books, but he, a lot of it focuses on people just trying to make a living in city life. But he has this very famous short story at the end of his collection of stories called The Dubliners, uh, which was published in 1914. And I'm, I'm just going to try to describe this, I guess. And I'm a horrible, this is not a joke, but I'm fearful of this because I'm a horrible joke teller. When I try to summarize things, I'm absolute bleep, right? I'll bleep out my word there. Uh, but essentially what this is, is uh, it's in the early 20th century, and there's, uh, there's a, a group of family and friends, and they're going to have a party. It's, a, it's like the winter holidays. It's time to be festive. Everyone's going to have a good time. So they all get gussied up, all dressed up, and they show up, and the party's being hosted by these three aunts. And the main character, really, is Gabriel Conroy. And he's kind of he's very educated. He's this middle-aged guy. Um, it may be a little bit full of himself, right? And he's going there, too, and he's in charge of making the big toast for the night, which is a big deal back then. When you make a toast, it's more than two seconds. You're going to be, tell, you know, going to be talking about all kinds of stuff for, I don't know, 10 minutes, right? And so he shows up with his wife, Greta, um, and everybody seems to be in a good uh, holiday mood. Then for some reason, though, he's thinking about this toast he's going to make, and if I remember correctly, he's going to quote an English poet in his toast, uh, Robert Browning, right? Uh, Gabriel Conroy loves European history. Um, he loves a lot of English writers. Meanwhile, he's Irish, right? Uh, so, but he has this kind of confusing moments in the party. Um, he tries to talk to some people, and he thinks he knows who they are, and he kind of, he kind of doesn't really listen. You know, he's like performing all the time. Uh, and so he just kind of makes these mistakes. One woman he talks to, her name is Miss Ivers, um, and she's a big Irish patriot. She's a big believer in going to the West, learning Gaelic, appreciating your own culture. And uh, she kind of mocks him a little bit, Mr. Mr. European, you know, who goes to Italy on his vacations and won't bother to go see his own country, right? So she makes fun of him. And so he just kind of gets flustered and embarrassed throughout the night. Finally, the night's over. His toast goes fairly well, right? And it's time to leave. And everyone's at the front door and everybody's saying goodbye. Uh, and he looks up the stairwell. He's still inside the house. And he sees his wife. And she's very, she looks very beautiful in the lighting. And she's listening to the song being played on the piano. And the singer, this tenor, is singing the lyrics for it. Ah, and I think it's called The Last of Ogram is the name of the song. So, but he looks up at her. He's not really listening to the music. And he's just thinking, my, my wife is very beautiful, but in a very possessive kind of way. You know, like, like, and literally, she's on a pedestal. She's at the top of the stairs, right? So he's just, but, you know, that's all he thinks. And then they leave the party, and they're in the coach, and they're headed to the hotel because their kids are at home being babysat, you know. So they're very excited. He was very excited because, like, well, I finally am going to be with my wife, you know, and we don't have the kids around, so you know what I'm talking about? So, uh, but he gets in the ho into the hotel room, and, of course, it's the, basically it's essentially the Victorian period, so they have 40 layers of clothing, you know, and he's undoing his tie and whatnot, right? 
And he looks to the side, he sees his wife on the bed, and she's crying. And he's kind of startled. Like, he, the whole time he thought she was in the same mood and mindset that he was. She's crying. And he asks her, why is she crying? And she tells him a little story about this young man she once loved. So when she, she originally is from the west of Ireland, where they speak Gaelic and they practice the old traditions. Uh, and there was this young man who loved her, named Michael Fury. And so they were younger. They were, you know, I don't know if they were teenagers or just around that area, you know. And so he, he was very much smitten by her. And he would, he's, um, he would come out and he would try to swoo her. He would try to court her. And then uh, suddenly her family, she found out they have to leave. They're moving to Dublin, moving, moving to the East Coast, right, to the big city world. Uh, and so the young man, he comes out. He's, he finds out that she's leaving. He's desperate. Uh, and so he goes out, and he doesn't feel particularly well. And it's very cold, and the, the weather's rotten. And he gets pneumonia, and he dies, right? And so she's kind of left with this memory that haunts her all her life. Like, here was this young man, you know, who was, who was courting me, you know, and was... And, uh, and they had a special relationship, and he died, and she goes to Dublin, right? Um, it's a very jarring experience. So she tells the story to her husband in the hotel room, right, Gabriel Conroy. And of course, he's like, this whole time, <laughs> she's been thinking about this young man from her past. But he's not upset, really. Instead, he just realizes how wrong he was about where her mind was. And maybe he didn't know about this whole history in her life. Uh, and so it's this kind of, Joyce's stories often end with epiphanies. The characters go through some massive transformation. Their, their worlds are, their understanding of the world somehow changes in some way. And this is how the story ends. And this is Gabriel Conroy. His, his wife has fallen asleep and he's looking out the window of the hotel room. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling in every part of the dark central plain on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. And Shannon's a very famous river in Ireland. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. So it's a very strange ending for this story. What is he thinking? It's also strange because he's picturing the snow falling on Michael Fury's grave. He never met Michael Fury. He has no idea where he's buried, right? So it's his imagination that's what's, what's really taking place here. And he's imagined the West. And there seems to be almost kind of a declared pilgrimage here for a moment, you know, that he's going to journey westward. And why would he go westward? And this has something to do with his roots, something to do with Irish culture, you know, something he learned from Miss Ivers at the party. Uh, and, but you also have this weird, again, I don't know, I, I don't think that this is uniquely Irish, but it's an interesting kind of emotion. But this kind of, the line ends with the living and the dead. It's this weird mixture, right, of like birth and death at the same time. So there are a lot of other uh, myths and stories for sure, right, uh, that the Irish have. Uh, at the beginning we talked about this one 
uh, Irish hero named Cahullan, which uh, again, uh, to my mind, he's maybe the best analogy. He's like Hercules in Greek mythology, just super strong, you know, uh, always willing to take on the quest and, and never giving up. So Cahullan, uh, Yates wrote about Cahullan, Lady Gregory, all these writers, and they also performed these plays at the Abbey Theater too. So people would like the people of Dublin would go there and they would they would hear about their myths and plays, right? They didn't have uh, widescreen TVs at that time, right? There was no Netflix back then. So, um, but Cahalan kind of took on this real almost like a living uh, power uh, because one of the people who was very much influenced by Cahalan was this man named Patrick Pierce, who was just a teacher in a school. And he kind of, he would teach, uh, it was an all-boys school, and he would talk about a lot of things, but also Irish culture. And so, um, but this idea of the unconquerable hero, you know, that's willing to fight the enemy at all cost. So Patrick Pierce ended up being one of the leaders of what was called the Easter Rising of 1916. So now we're getting back into, you know, like serious history again, right? And so there were all these leaders, and there was James Connolly, uh, there was uh, Michael Collins, he was a bit young at the time, he was a big, he was a big rebel at the time. Uh, he would take on a big role later on. There was Dave Valara, uh, who would eventually become uh, uh, president of Ireland. So they all joined together, and you had these different groups too, it was kind of neat. You had the Irish Citizen Army, they were socialists, and then you had the Irish Volunteers, they were kind of capitalists, right? They all were trying to picture like, what's Ireland gonna be? We're gonna kick out the English, who we know, how are we gonna run things, right? You also had the Command the Mon, which was the League of Women, and they all kind of joined and created what was called the Irish Republican Army. That was the first time that was used, that's a phrase. And so uh, they occupied uh, the general post office in the middle of Dublin, and surrounding areas in Dublin, and this is a military conflict. They had guns, they had a plan, and they were gonna finally kick out the English. In reality, it was unlikely. <laughs> the British had lots of weapons, and they, you know, meanwhile, they're going through World War I at the same time, so they're well armed, right? So the British, just in a matter of a few days, uh, crushed the whole rebellion. And then what the British do is they execute 13 of the leaders, you know. Uh, one of them, I, and I apologize, I can't think of his name, I think it's Clark. Um, he was so injured that he couldn't stand, and so they executed him as he was sitting in his chair. You know, barely alive anyway, right? So when they did that, uh, what happens when you, you kill someone in that, in that kind of nature? Uh, what they did was they created martyrs. And there's nothing more dangerous than a martyr, right? So um, not everyone in Ireland really cared much about this stuff. Like I want, I have my family, I have my job, you know. Yes, I don't love the English being here, but whatever, right? And so once you created these martyrs, there are more people joined the cause. That this is not acceptable, right? And so they joined the cause, and that things grew and grew, and they were becoming more and more organized. And then finally, you had the War of Independence from 1919 to 1921 and the Irish won, or at least exhausted the English. You know, they were tired of dealing, it was called the Irish problem in England. Oh my gosh, the Irish, uh, they're causing problems again, right? So um, the Irish won, sort of, right? And so what happened is Ireland was cut into two countries, 
And so you have the Southern Ireland, which is the lower 26 counties. That's the country that exists today. And then you have Northern Ireland, six counties, and they're part of the United Kingdom still. The United Kingdom wanted to keep them because that's where industrialization, was, industrialization uh, all the money was there, all the shipbuilding, you know. So uh, people had mixed feelings about that. There was a civil war. You know, do we keep on fighting or do we just accept the treaty? Uh, and then, in the end, they accepted the treaty. So to this day, um, it all depends on people's politics and where they stand. Some people would say you need to unite Ireland. You know, it's partitioned. It's not, it's not right. Most people are saying, okay, that's old. That's kind of an old story. Uh, we are, I love my neighbor. My neighbor's English. My neighbor's Protestant. You know, why are we still fighting this old fight, right? So, but this uh, image on the other side, right? We got one picture of Holland on the left. It's an illustration by uh, J.C. Leyendecker called Cuchulainn in Battle. On the other side, you have a statue, and that's called the Dying uh, Cuchulainn. It was built in 1935. It's inside the general post office that the Irish occupied. And so, but it's an image of one of the, uh, well, I guess in a way, the last myth of Cuchulainn, and that is he was fighting some enemies and he was so determined to defeat them despite fighting for, I, I don't know, like days, I think, right? It just went on and on that he tied himself to a tree just so he could continue to stay, stand, so he could continue fighting, right? And then Kuhalan finally was killed. But it's martyr-like, right? You know? It's like you're, you're like celebrating death in, in some strange way. It's like birth and death and continue fighting. So after the partition, you know, there's always been troubles in the Northern Ireland and the fact they're called the troubles. So that's like the language that they use. Uh, I do want to say though, but we want to be careful. It's a very safe place today. They love American tourists to come there. They'll accept your money, right? But um, every once in a while there's still a little violence, but overall it's a very peaceful place since 1998, which was the Good Friday Agreement, and everyone put their guns down, or at least pretended to, right? So, but you have this weird uh, development that's occurred in Northern Ireland. A lot of cities that are famous for graffiti and murals and street art, and Northern Ireland's been doing this uh, since the 70s, certainly. Uh, but you'll have these neighborhoods still up there, and there's Protestant neighborhoods, and there's Catholic neighborhoods, in fact, they even had, and they had these giant walls to them, between them called peace walls. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago they thought maybe we should get rid of those walls. But they had a referendum and they said, no, let's keep them, right? We'll keep the walls. So, but these are actually residential houses. So you see these murals on the sides of them. I mean, somebody lives there. You know, they wake up, they have their coffee, they go to work, right? Um, and you have the Catholic images, uh, often those are around... Uh, uh, Falls Road in Belfast. There's Derry's another big city too, uh, but then also you have the Process section, which is sometimes around Shankill Road. Those are famous areas. Um, and if you lived there back then, right, during certain times, this like knowing those distinctions would save your life. Like you don't want to be Catholic and enter into this area late at night during certain times back then, right? Very dangerous. So, but it's just kind of interesting how their styles are different. And today they're trying to figure out to, what to do with the militaristic ones because they look very sinister. Uh, but it is history, it's also art. Uh, what do we do with it? Do we erase it? Do we keep it, right? But the Protestant side, the Protestant paramilitary groups, I guess the best analogy would be like militia, 
in our world, right? Uh, but they had lots of guns. And you had the Ulster Freedom Fighters, and you had the Ulster Defense Association, uh, all these different groups. Uh, this particular image is called the Belfast of Mona Lisa. So like the actual painting of Mona Lisa by da Vinci, if you ever see it, wherever you stand, it looks like she's looking at you, like her eyes are following you. Very creepy, Mona, right? But, <laughs> but in this case, it's called the, Belfast, uh, uh, the Mona Lisa of Belfast because it looks like he's targeting you wherever you stand. It's meant to intimidate you, is what it's supposed to do. The other side is kind of more of a Catholic style. And I don't know if you agree with me. I tend to think it looks more, a little more religious, almost like a, the, the top of a cathedral, but I guess that's just the roof, right? But that's, uh, that's almost more, you know, the, well, I guess you wouldn't know it's martyrdom, but uh, this is Bobby Sands, and he was a famous member of the Irish Republican Army. Uh, he was imprisoned in the, in the late 70s and 80s. Um, and they were, at the time, the Irish Republican Army, they were holding strikes because they wanted to be considered as political prisoners, POWs, and they didn't want to be considered as criminals, so they're very big definitions, different definitions. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Margaret Thatcher would just call them criminals, crooks, right? So, but they would protest, and one of the protests they held was a hunger strike, and it went on for many days. And there was a part where, uh, and it's a bit gruesome to think about, but the guards force-fed Bobby Sands and his stomach exploded and he died. And so, but this is a very, you know, it's celebrating his, you know, it's, here he is, he's smiling, he's looking at us, you know. You even have bright colors of breaking of the chains um, of slavery, I guess. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's almost martyr-like, right? Uh, here are some stats, I mean, that uh, are in dates that matter, I mean, uh, you have a, the Easter, basically the troubles began around 1968 and they ended in 1998. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to get too deep into that, but that's that world of car bombs. People got disappeared a lot. Um, the police, which the IRA would feel represented uh, the British, you know, uh, kingdom. Uh, they were targeted a lot. And if you ever watch movies about this, people will always get up in the morning and they take a mirror and they look up under their cars before they go to work, right? So there's a horrendous time. Um, I think one of the worst stories would be about the disappeared. People would just vanish. They'd take your relative, you know, someone involved in the politics of the time, and they would just disappear, and the bodies have never, ever been found. So you're kind of dealing with two losses. You lost them, but in a way you still have that hope that they're still there, even though they're probably not, right? So about, uh, safe estimate would be about 3,600 people were killed during those years, about 30,000 people were wounded. Uh, and it's really like urban warfare is what it looked like. Uh, meanwhile, you're still going to the grocery store and you're still going to work. Here are some other murals uh, that kind of capture maybe some of the ways that we started this discussion. Uh, on the left, you see, these are both Irish Republican murals. On the left, you see uh, uh, Holland again. Um, and on, his, on the day of his dying, when he fought off the enemies, and there he strapped himself to the tree so he can keep on fighting. Uh, next to the image of uh, Cahalan, you have names of various people who fought for the Irish Republican Army over time. On the other side, on the other uh, image you see of a mural, uh, this one is of Julie Livingston, uh, who was just a victim in all this violence. 
She was about 13 or 14 years old. She was going home after uh, at the she was at the shops, and a, and a plastic bullet of the police force uh, killed her. Right. So just just senseless violence, you know, absolute senseless. She's not even involved in any of this. But notice next to her the image of her face. Uh, there's text, and what is that text from? It's from Yeats' poem, The Stolen Child. So it's, you know, this kind of this wish that she's with fairies, right? She's with the she. Um, uh, that's what we hope for her, right? So, but again, Ireland today, Northern Ireland, it's a very safe place. Uh, maybe July 12th, in the middle of July, it can be a bit risky in certain areas because those are called the Orange Parades and the Protestants will march and they'll wear their hats and they've got their orange on. And sometimes the, the part of their marching routes go into the Catholic section and that's seen as a very tense moment, right? Uh, and about, I haven't been there for ages, but I was there in 2000 with my girlfriend and we took a ferry from Scotland into Belfast. And it was like, duh, it's July. And we looked at the television screen at the, at the ferry port and it was all just fire, you know, cars being, you know, firebombed and lots of protesters. So we thought, uh, we're going to head to Dublin. <laughs> we just took the train straight to Dublin. But um, overall, though, I don't want to, I don't want to create, you know, that's the problem with uh, maybe when you get into Irish stuff is you turn to hyperbole a lot. Sometimes you exaggerate things a little too much for effect. It's a very peaceful place. And um, uh, these days, if there's any chance of unification, it'll be through voting. And it might happen, by the way. Uh, a lot of the new people who are learning Gaelic in Northern Ireland are Protestant. They're really getting into uh, Irish culture and Gaelic, Gaelic traditions. So who knows, right? Uh, Brexit was a big problem uh, for this whole, this whole situation, the borders and stuff. But here's finally a mural. Maybe this is the best way to uh, conclude this, um, this discussion. And of course, we've got to use U2 to end this all, right? It's very hopeful you know, positive music. But here's a mural that depicts a Protestant boy and a Catholic girl. And I'll read just a little bit. And so at the top of it you see, no more, in big words. And it says, no more bombing, no more murder, no more killing of our sons, no more standing at the graveside, having to bury our loved ones. And it ends, no more hatred from our children, no more, no more, no more. And so, yeah, the song. I love this song. I mean, we could all argue about which is the best U2 album. Joshua Tree, uh, The Streets Have No Name, absolute classic. So I hope that was um, interesting. Uh, thank you for listening to me. And uh, slancha, uh, which means uh, health to you. <laughs>